When I was a kid, I used to spend my afternoons at my paternal grandparents' house. They lived in suburban Sunnyville, California. Their home was tucked into the bend of a cul-de-sac, nestled amongst yards of lava rock and framed by tall, prickly hedges. In their small patch of grass, they had what to my young eyes was a magnificent magnolia tree. I used to play with the big, leathery petals as I lay in the grass, tired of watching whatever it was that my brother wanted to watch on the tiny, one-foot-wide television in the secondary family room. That room was always dark, for some reason, and seemed even stranger for its recessed lounge spaces, long, dark hallway, and shadowy, attached, formal dining room. The entire house was something straight out of the 1960s. The carpets were a shag so deep you could watch it sway under the sweeping path of a rotating fan. Their couches were floral and shredded, subsequently taped up, from cat claws. Down the hall, in the little alcove that housed the front door, never used as friends and family always entered through the garage door, sat strange, untouchable artifacts from travels abroad, tucked into towering curios. My brother and I were too afraid to touch any of that stuff, though I don't ever recall being warned against it. Instead, we arrowed straight for the toy drawer, full of free ball-and-cup-type trinkets and bouncy balls, or we asked to play the mirror game. This was not so much a game as a fun way to risk your neck inside the house. My grandmother would reach under the carpet-topped coffee table in the primary living room and retrieve what appeared to be the world's oldest mirror. It had flaking filigreed edges, and the stand once hinged to the back had long since been torn off. I don't know what it was supposed to be used for, really, besides the game, which went as follows. First, you walked to the doorway and stood just where the shag met the tile in the hall. Then you'd tuck that big oval mirror under your chin and walk forward. Your aim was to look down and walk on the ceiling without running into a wall or falling into the sunken space of the secondary living room. As you can imagine, the toy drawer and the mirror game only held so much sway. <laughs> they had a pool too, but we only swam in it when we came over on the weekends. My brother was happy to share the tiny TV with me, so long as I wanted to watch what he wanted. My grandpa contented himself with solitaire on the PC in the computer room, such as it was at the time. So that left me, a child used to running feral in the woods for hours on end, with little to do for entertainment. This meant I usually ended up returning the mirror to my grandma and plopping down beside her on their, much newer, less cat-clawed, couch in the primary living room. My grandma's name was Karen. I never felt like I knew her very well, for all that I loved talking to her, observing her. She wasn't the most verbose woman, my grandma. As near as I could tell, she did the same thing every day of her life and had done since creation, probably. She got up late and sat dressed in her pink muumuu in the same spot, farthest right-hand side, of the couch with a glass of milk. She put ice cubes in it, but didn't like cold on her hands. So she wrapped her glass in a paper towel. She always had a cigarette burning, but seemed to draw from it only once or twice before it burned out and needed to be replaced. The huge TV was always on, typically with a game show or Judge Judy, 
as she puffed and sipped. Around noon, she would amble back to the bedroom, another place I never ventured on pain of childhood terror, to change into a tiny pair of jeans and a sweater. Then she would return to her spot on the couch with an alcoholic replacement for the iced milk in hand and switch the show to her soaps. Always, always, she had a book in her right hand. She was an incredibly prolific reader, my fine-boned, chain-smoking, routine-loving grandma. Whenever she ventured out to Costco or some other store, she seemed to come home with at least one book, but usually more. There was a built-in wall of bookshelves beside the TV in the living room, just above the toy drawer. When I would root around inside for a bouncy ball or one of those weird rubbery cup things that you'd invert and then watch pop back into shape, like that's fun or something, I'd glance up at that monument to my grandma's reading prowess and think, Dang, I don't think anyone reads as many books as Grandma Karen. Each shelf was crammed cheek to jowl with colorful spines. Fanciful scrolling fonts and bold, saturated colors caught my eye. The books were small, about as big as my Magic Treehouse books even, but thick with more pages than I could ever dream of reading. In my head, adults only read big, serious-looking hardcovers. But those books didn't look like kids' books. So what were they? I've talked about it at length before, but it stands to mention again that at this point in my life, I was a very, very weak reader. At almost nine, I could barely manage the Magic Treehouse. My favorite books when pressed to read were Frog and Toad, Big Print, Short Sentences, Rye Humor. I got flustered trying to read anything beyond that, as my eyes tended to just to skim off the words, like the ink used to make them was oil. I learned to hate it because I couldn't do it, and not being able to do it embarrassed me. My brother, on the other hand, was an extremely advanced reader, show off, and I felt even less inclined to push myself in light of that. I was far more content in my own head, making up games and running around outside in the sun and dirt, clasping sticky salamanders in my palms, or building a fort out of the burned husk of a fallen redwood. I couldn't read stories, but I could live them. And yet I watched my grandma. I peered at the little books in her fragile hand, only a bit larger than my own, and wondered at their contents. I noticed that she only needed one hand to read, freeing up the other to hold her half-forgotten cigarette suspended over the ashtray on the end table. The covers were sprayed with golden sunsets, blooming flowers, dramatic scenes of rescue and passion. The women on the covers were striking, draped in flowing dresses, somehow both rucked up and falling off at the same time. The men always had their eyes down, staring at the women in their arms, and were usually made more intriguing by a sword belt or flowing locks. They reminded me of the soap operas she kept on at all times in the afternoon. After sundown, they switched to HBO. If you've been listening for a while, then it shouldn't surprise you to know I loved the soap operas. I even got in trouble once at school for reenacting an entire evil twin love triangle plotline over several recesses. I also think she was a secret princess now that I'm thinking about it. I was told it wasn't school appropriate. 
So suffice it to say that I was intrigued by these weird little books that took up so much room in my grandma's smoky throwback house. I never tried to read one, but I did ask her once what they were about. My grandma simply shrugged and answered, my stories. Then she turned the page, took a drag from her cigarette, and got back to reading what I now know to be a mass market paperback romance novel. Hi, and welcome to the Kingdom of Thirst podcast. My name is Abigail Kelly. I'm an author, illustrator, history nerd, and bookseller. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the disappearance of the mass market paperback. The term mass market paperback is hilariously unsexy. It's as dry as the cheap, unbleached pages contained within them. It's pure corpo-speak for a beloved, disdained, incredibly important, utterly dismissed format. Their much more affectionate name is Pocketbooks, but seeing as that's also the name of a Simon & Schuster imprint that happens to publish said Pocketbooks, it makes things a little bit more confusing than they need to be. For simplicity's sake, and since it's their most well-known moniker, we'll call them mass markets from now on. So, what is a mass market? Believe me, you'd know one if you saw one. They're the chonky boys. The bricks. The thickum bookums. The book chodes. I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> the books that help friggin' Brandon Sanderson consume an entire shelf of my friggin' sci-fi fantasy section and probably what you still think of when I say the words romance novel. They're four by seven inches, give or take a quarter of an inch or so. They're paperbacks, sometimes with an accompanying secondary cover called a stepback tucked just behind the first. It's usually racier than the cover, though that has swung in and out and in and out of fashion. They're usually a few hundred pages long, and those pages are off-white, a little coarse. Sometimes the type is so small, the margin so thin, that even those without eye considerations balk at reading them. Past the step back that may or may not be there, your average mass market is utilitarian. No frills. Every page is crammed with text, maximizing all that unbleached paper space. And in the back, it wasn't unusual to find heaps of ads, lists of similar titles, sneak peeks, or even hotlines to call if you needed a recommendation. Sometimes a postcard might be bound in. Want 10 sizzling romance reads? No worries. Just tear out the card, pop it, and a check into an envelope, and mail it to Harlequin. They were cheap. Cheaper than cheap. Even today, your average mass market, if you can find one, costs around eight bucks. Reportedly, the man who invented them was adamant that a mass market should never cost more than a pack of cigarettes. Convenient, I imagine, for people just like my grandma. These are not books made for prestige. They are not made for display or to be collected. They are designed for the binge reader, the serial TBR adder, the person who simply can't spare the shelf space for a hardcover because they have too many damn books to care about that sort of thing at all. 
Now, all of that may lead you to believe that these books are somehow worth less, culturally speaking, than their hardcover or trade paperback compatriots. I don't believe this is true. We have a nasty habit of devaluing things that are accessible to the masses. Things that lower barriers to queer creators, creators of color, women, people who are not straight white men, shall we say. Accessibility does not and has never meant a lack of value. Setting aside the fact that arguing about the inherent value of art is a discourse quagmire riddled with AI advocates and other bad actors these days, there are many ridiculous reasons people turn their noses up at mass markets, not least of which is its modern primary association with romance novels. It won't bankrupt you to buy a stack? Must be bad. Has an eye-grabbing cover? Must be trashy. Physically small? Can't be as good as a hardcover. Can be found anywhere, not just in bookshops many people don't have access to anymore? Oh, that's garbage. I want to note here that within the romance community, as far as I've seen, the arguments seem to mostly center around the fact that some folks find it more comfortable to hold bigger or smaller books. A lot of this is simply personal preference, some of it is tied up in disabilities, as well as the fact that, let's be real, if we're talking about the size of the text on the page, people with visual impairments might truly struggle with reading them. These books, while being extremely accessible in terms of cost and size, are not necessarily the most accessible in terms of disabilities. Now, we can get into a whole conversation about why large print books are so goddamn expensive, but we're not going to do that today. If you have the opinion that you prefer the size of the trade paperback, that is perfectly fine. Not that anyone needs my permission to have opinions, but that's completely fair is what I'm saying. I'm also not really talking about you here in this particular instance. In this mini-audio essay, I'm addressing the wider perception of the mass market, its gradual extinction, for now, its importance to the broader publishing ecosystem, and my own observations as a reader, author, and bookseller. I am, by no means, an expert. And though I did research for this, much of this is a hash of conjecture and professional guesswork. I'll get things wrong, I'm sure but I've tried my best to sum up the state of things in a clear, entertaining way that sticks to the facts as I have found them. The truth is that we really don't know what happened to the mass markets. Like with everything else in publishing, hard numbers are difficult to come by or unreliable. Publishing house representatives will say one thing, perhaps with absolute sincerity, but reality more often than not contradicts those statements. What I know has been cobbled together from publishers' weekly articles, trawling publisher websites, book scan numbers, and what I've seen after nearly a decade as a bookseller. Piecing together the fall of the mass market is a, a bit like trying to solve a murder mystery as it's happening. There are many suspects, and almost certainly just as many causes of death. So, let's start at the beginning. For most of history, books were expensive as hell. Before the advent of paper, writing was painstakingly scratched out in wet clay, tablets, 
tanned and scraped animal skins, parchment, dried leaves or tree bark, or crisscross layers of papyrus. Every word had to be copied by hand by a skilled artisan, and pests were common, necessitating protective coverings and regular care. Unsurprisingly, with the level of material cost, work, and skill required, many people throughout history couldn't afford to have a fast personal library. If you were lucky to know how to read, you probably had business records and religious materials. If you were a bit better off, you might have some poetry, history, science, or theological tomes as well. The advent of movable type and the arrival of paper, a material made from pulped fibers, dried in sheets, in Europe by way of China and the Middle East, brought down both the material and labor costs of books. Alongside rising literacy rates, suddenly everyone could own and write books. Fiction flourished, and the publishing infrastructure, for better and worse as we know it today, was born. Compared to the codexes and hand-copied scrolls and illuminated manuscripts of the past, books were downright affordable. However, like today, they were still a luxury product. No matter how you or I might feel, they were not necessary for life. Up until very recently, most people could very rarely splurge on non-essentials. Families were bigger, wages were abysmal, and personal time was in short supply if there was any to be had at all. This doesn't even touch on the concept of accessibility to those in more rural areas. A poor person in 1800s New York might be able to afford a cheap book from a corner bookstore. But what do you do if you don't have a bookstore? What if you live in rural... I don't know, Ohio, or in a mining community in California. Even if you could afford one, you'd be unlikely to find a wide selection available from your local salty merchant. What I'm getting at here is that we live in a completely different and much fuller book world. You, listener, can find books at grocery stores, have them delivered to your door, read them on your devices, instantly go to your local indie, or borrow from a library or friend. Most of us have more books in our houses than we'll ever truly read, partly because we are surrounded by them everywhere we go. It is my personal opinion that you can thank the humble mass market for that. Like with every good invention, there's several different versions of the mass market's creation. Publishing is an ecosystem. And when there is an empty ecological niche, usually several creatures evolve to fill it in at the same time and then compete for the available resources. By which I mean, several people probably came up with the idea for a cheaper, smaller, easily marketable book format at once as the technology became available and the need arose. What we know for sure is that Albatross Books began making what we would consider mass markets in Germany in 1931, and then Penguin Random House launched them in the UK in 1935. Under the direction of Robert de Graff, Simon & Schuster then exported the mass market to the US under the imprint Pocket Books. By 1936, over a million mass markets were in print. The myth is that Alan Lane, one of the founders of Penguin Random House, got the idea of the mass market when he was traveling by train and found himself appalled by the selection available to him. 
Outside of the bounds of a bookstore, there was a massive market of impulsive, bored readers waiting to be tapped. What they needed was a cheap selection of eye-grabbing books available wherever they were, including drugstores, train stations, kiosks, hotels, and pretty much anywhere else you could fit a wire rack. The size of the mass market came not just from the idea of convenience, pocketbooks can literally go in your pocket, see? But from the desire to display them easily in any kind of shop. As a bookseller, I can tell you that there is a lot of fussiness involved in displaying those fancy hardcovers and towering trade paperbacks. Bookshelves have to be angled just right so that the faceouts don't fall and damage the books. They can't be too deep or else customers inevitably push them all the way to the back. They can't be too tall or else titles can't be reached and human interaction-averse shoppers might simply forego the purchase rather than ask for assistance. On top of that, most shops don't want to be a bookstore. Unless there's heaps and heaps of money on the line, a train station kiosk probably isn't going to invest in retrofitting its outfit to support a new venture into selling hardcovers. But a cheap box of the latest releases that neatly tuck into a convenient wire rack by the register or alongside the newspapers and magazines you're already selling? Well, that's just a no-brainer. One of the most famous calling cards of the mass market is its cover. Romance novels aren't the only ones with jaw-dropping illustrations. Mystery, sci-fi, fantasy, and erotica all got a facelift, which was a benefit for both the consumer and the illustrator suddenly in high demand. Many people now collect vintage mass markets for the illustrations alone, myself included. Of course, there were pretty books before the invention of the mass market. I have several hardcovers from the turn of the century with gorgeous illustrations pasted on the linen covers, usually accompanied by foil stamping. But the paperback cover specifically had to be illustrated from top to bottom. You couldn't rely on the color or texture of linen for visual interest any longer. As a side note here, this also left room for the advertisement slash blurb slash synopsis format that we know today. You couldn't get away with all of those words being stamped into linen, after all. And dust jackets, though around since the 1800s, were designed for protection, not advertisement. Once a book reached its destination, it was typically thrown away. You wouldn't find a synopsis on the inner flap like we see today. And you would be lucky to find even a tagline stamped into the front cover. On top of the books just being more expensive, they also couldn't advertise themselves to people at a glance, meaning you had to actually shop and open it up before you decided to buy it. Think of how much slower trips to the bookstore would be if you had to crack open every single book that caught your eye. Artists made entire careers out of cranking out incredibly skilled, beautifully rendered illustrations for these covers too. You might recognize some of the work if you saw it. For example, Robert McGinnis, famous to most people for his work on the early James Bond and Breakfast at Tiffany's movie posters, created some of the most famous and controversial romance novel covers ever. Please do yourself a favor and look up Tender is the Storm and Fires of Winter uncensored. You're welcome. Unfortunately, like with most advertisement illustration of the era, we don't have many of the surviving original works due to the degradation of materials. 
gouache and watercolor dry quick, but they don't last long if stored incorrectly, and general lack of preservation. It's worth remembering that, for as beautiful as we might find this work, these illustrations weren't always viewed as valuable beyond their immediate use. In all likelihood, many of these works were simply discarded when no longer deemed worth the effort of storing. This is compounded by the fact that many of these artists aren't known for their work on romance novels. Not because it wasn't gorgeous or because of personal feelings of the artist, but because archivists, estates, and biographers conveniently tend to either gloss over the work or omit it entirely. To use Robert McGinnis as another example, a casual flip through his most comprehensive art book contains a handful of his romance covers in the chapter Historicals and Controversy. That's it. I even bought a book that made promises about covering the entire history of pulp paperback covers a few years back and was outraged to discover it contained only one romance cover. An entire genre defined by its use of eye-catching illustrated covers on cheap paperbacks completely scrubbed from the history of the format. So yeah, it's a bummer. Anyway, this sea change in cover art and advertisement sprang from the sudden ubiquity of the paperback, kicking off something of an advertisement's arms race, as well as the way the books were physically displayed. If you have, say, a total of 24 spaces on a wire spinner, that means your book needs to be as bright and eye-catching as possible. It takes the flick of a wrist to turn a spinner, and a hurried shopper might only do so for a handful of seconds. If your book flashes by, you only have a second to grab their attention. You better be able to do that even as a blur of color and foil. So when you think of those quintessential mass market covers, busty, sexy, colorful, outrageous, no matter the genre, ask yourself whether you would have stopped to take a look while you bought a chocolate bar from the kiosk at the train station. So at this point, you might be asking yourself, Hey, if they're so cheap and pretty, where are all the mass markets? Great question! Before we dive into that, though, I want to ask you a question. If you've been in a place that sells books recently, did you see any? My guess is no. Or if you did, they were squeezed between pillars of trade and hardcovers on a shelf such that they were almost completely obscured from view. You might have seen a few classics tucked away in fiction. Think 1984, Moby Dick. Perhaps you ambled back toward the fantasy and sci-fi sections and happened to see the odd, stout paperback or two. If you were lucky enough to encounter a romance section, you might have seen a reissue of Bridgerton or one of the Wallflower series. But you probably didn't notice them, did you? In most bookstores, you'll be lucky to find even a handful of mass markets tucked into the sections they once dominated. If you weren't looking for them, eh, well, they're easy to miss. Most people do. So how did we get here? 
how exactly did we go from 1 million mass markets published in a year after their introduction to the market to struggling to remember the last time we saw them? First, I want to emphasize the fact that they do still exist. I am one of those weirdos who always checks the magazine section of Walgreens to confirm that they still have at least a few. I give them a loving pat whenever I go to Costco. At my bookstore, I make an extra effort to hand sell them to readers. They cost less, I say. They're fantastic books. They go in your pocket. Whoa. But honestly, more often than not, they end up back on the shelf in favor of a behemoth trade paperback. Sometimes the same book that costs twice as much. Why? Before we get into my theories, let's just start with some stats. According to an article published in Publishers Weekly, August 5th, 2022, titled Where Are Mass Market Paperbacks Headed? which cited stats from the American Publishers Association, sales from 2017 to 2020 dropped from $750 million to $430 million, a precipitous 42.7% drop. That's steep, folks. And this comes at a time of spiking book sales due to a resurgence in interest in physical books as well as the lockdown when everyone was sad and lonely and home all the time. Interestingly, this is also happening as book prices are climbing rapidly. Anecdotally, I see this almost every day in the bookshop. Almost all the books I order for customers have gone up by a dollar or more from their price last year. Paperbacks average around $19, and hardcovers are roughly $30 with tax. By contrast, the average mass market costs between $6 and $10. You might even be able to find a book published both in trade and mass market sizes, giving you the choice to read the same book at two starkly different price points without the weight inherent in the U.S. hardcover paperback system. So if consumers are being squeezed by inflation, high costs of living, and stagnant wages, why aren't the much cheaper mass markets having a resurgence? Here's where some things get murky. Publishing is notoriously stingy with its numbers and overly loud with its assurances. That same Publishers Weekly article is chock full of promises from publishers that they have no plans to cut back their mass markets. But both my personal observations and those from other authors, readers, and commenters online point to the gradual disappearance from shelves. This would track with the 42% decrease in yearly profits. If a publisher isn't making money, then why would they make them? But it's not that simple. It's never that simple. See, publishers tend to point the, oh no, we're losing money, finger at ebooks. This makes sense only if you are citing ebooks from traditional publishers 10 years ago. As of 2023, the average ebook price is around $8 and can reach as high as $17. Self published authors tend to keep their ebooks between $2.99 and $4.99, which is competitive with mass market prices if you're bothering to count them, which, as far as I can tell, most people aren't. So, yes. 
Back when traditional publishers were first grappling to match Amazon's super low ebook prices in the early aughts, the low cost niche would have immediately become oversaturated, effectively introducing a new, more effective animal into the ecological niche. But that's no longer the case. Ebooks are proper expensive, and there's no shortage of folks complaining about it online. To my mind, the first wave of ebooks is the first blow to mass markets, not the cause of death. Another culprit is shifting generational norms. Think about this for a second. <laughs> now stay with me. How often do you enjoy being perceived? Like on the bus, sitting in a doctor's office, eating lunch in the park. Do you want to put up a billboard in front of your face with your interest plastered across it when that interest might be something everyone has an opinion on? A lot of people will say no, myself included. This is not the same thing as being embarrassed by, say, whipping out a clinch cover in public. I'm not embarrassed, thanks. But rather, a generational cultural inclination toward privacy, helped by the fact that most of us live much of our lives in a little nondescript box we take in and out of our pockets. This goes hand in hand with the trend of replacing traditional romance novel covers with what is colloquially known as illustrated covers. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in that sentence, not least of which is the insidious puritanical undertones in this trend, which is reflected in advertisements to a younger generation currently very vocal about their disdain for sex even as they gobble up sexy romance. Now, on the flip side, I also don't like the hoopla around, quote, traditional covers being replaced by, quote, ugly illustrated ones. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. A lot of them aren't my thing either. But you know what's also not my thing? Your, quote, traditional covers featuring poorly photoshopped models and period inaccurate petticoats. I really don't like real people photography on my books. You might. You might like the pastel, highly stylized covers in fashion currently. Whatever. A new style will pop up soon enough. You might hate it or you might love it. Personal preference does not make a good cover. <laughs> a cover is an advertisement. If it sells the book, then it has done its job, regardless of what you or I might personally find visually appealing. Say la vie, baby. I'm more concerned with the fact that the decline in outwardly romantic covers might be because a book will be flagged as erotica by a puritanical algorithm, personally. But to bring it back around to mass markets, I don't believe they're being modernized, for lack of a better word, nearly as much as the rest of romance and other genres are. In romance, they are largely seen as they have always been. Clinch covers or man abs, usually featuring photographed models. Their last update was sometime in the 90s and early 2000s. There's nothing wrong with this inherently. But if you're used to your interests being safely tucked behind the screen of your phone, is it really a surprise that you might recoil from whipping out a cover like that on a crowded train? What I'm not saying is that that's right. You should read your romance novels proudly. This pervasive idea that there's something to be ashamed about is bad for everyone. 
and speaks to a gross perception of both the genre and the people who read it. Now, this is merely speculation on my part. I am my bookshop's romance expert, and I frequently hand sell books to customers. I pay close attention to the sales and the reactions I get to my pitches. In my experience, unless it, it is beautifully illustrated, something vanishingly rare in mass markets these days, a clinch or an ab cover, mass market simply doesn't sell anymore. Not on the shelf. It's very, very rare for me to land a sale, even when I put my all into the pitch. Alongside this knee-jerk reaction to not-on-trend covers is another pet theory of mine. I believe that we are living in a visual age, and that has had enormous effect on books. I'm not talking strictly Instagram or book talk or whatever the hell. I mean just in general. How we perceive our world is different than how it was before. Most of us will take a picture of anything at any time just because we can. We're used to it. We're used to seeing art and photography in a constant stream every second or on our phones or at our computers. Simply put, I think that one of the reasons mass markets don't sell as well, and won't without a facelift, is because they don't photograph well. The average reader probably isn't going to take a pic for Insta of their cheap, sort of out of date looking mass market, but they will snap one of that glossy, foil embossed, spray edge hardcover. They might even share a photo of the cute pastel trade paperback they got too. But the slow demise of mass markets can't be tied to just ebook prices and shifting perceptions of their covers. On top of these hits, we have the general abandonment and outright culling of what are called mid-list authors across genres. These authors are the backbone of traditional publishing. They're the ones you don't hear about. They are the authors who crank out slow hits, the books that will fill shelves for years to come, selling slowly but consistently. They don't typically get hardcover releases, and, at least in the romance genre, they used to be primarily found in mass markets. In the last several years, publishers have begun to abandon the authors who keep their numbers stable in favor of pumping all of the PR money into rockstar authors and the occasional debut, who might be dropped like a hat as soon as their star power begins to fade. If you're scaling back mass markets, you are scaling back midlist authors and vice versa. If you bother to shift a midlist traditionally mass market author into trade or hardcover and their books don't do well, well then, hey, let them go, I guess. They aren't making any money anyway, right? <sighs> this is another point where publishers say one thing and authors say another. The Publisher's Weekly article spends about half its words quoting publisher reps who claim to be fully behind mass markets, debuting new authors in the format, pushing for more diverse stories, and definitely super duper not cutting back on their numbers. The other half, of course, is spent talking about how sales have fallen by roughly 55 million units in 2017 to 37 million units in 2021. If it is true, this is great news. I want publisher support to be strong. Yes, debut new authors in accessible, cheap ways that get their books out as far to readers as they possibly can. That's awesome. I don't know. Perhaps my view is skewed by my area, the bookshops I've worked in, the echo chamber of my social media circle. 
but I can't help but be a little skeptical. The podcast has brought me so many wonderful things, including the chance to be on the email list for publishers like Avon, Harlequin, Sourcebooks, and so on. About every quarter, I'll get a list of new titles coming out, as well as their formats. A quick glance at my emails shows that all the mass markets they're pushing are by established mid-list authors. So either the debuts aren't getting any promo help, which is entirely possible, or I don't know. Call me suspicious. But when they go on to say that HarperCollins conducted extensive research that showed nearly 75% of readers judge a bookstore depending on its mass market collection, I get a little... Hmm. Listen. Listen. I've worked in bookshops for a while now. And I can definitively say that no one ever has come up to me and asked where the mass markets are. Most people don't even know what they are. And when presented with the option as they order a book, I have to show them an example. So yeah, I'm suspicious. Now, as we approach the final point here, I want to emphasize that I don't have any data to back this up. This claim is based purely on hearsay, conjecture, and my own research into the paper manufacturing crisis that has been ongoing since like 2017. So with that in mind, one of the factors many people on the internet cite as being crucial to the sudden rarity of mass markets is paper. One of the reasons publishers claim they must increase book prices is due to the rising cost of paper, and even Amazon has upped its manufacturing costs for authors who publish using KDP. So pretty much you know it's bad. Paper is expensive, and we use more of it than ever. On top of that, there are only a handful, like five or less large-scale printers around the world these days, which obviously ups the cost. The murkiness comes in when we get to the mass markets. I've seen it thrown around that there are only two printers who will even manufacture the standard 4x7 mass market size these days, which, if true, would understandably contribute another blow. Unfortunately, I can't actually confirm that claim. Here's what I know for sure. I have always dreamed of having my own mass markets. I would love, love to see the new protector of books in a chunky little paperback. I want the title foiled, the step back saucy, and the pages coarse. So obviously I looked into it. Turns out it's not anywhere near easy to get them made these days. It's damn expensive. Only one reliable printer I know of will make them, but the cost is prohibitively high. By the time they got to readers, in order to turn even the smallest profit, I would have to charge nearly as much as a trade paperback. This might be okay if mass market enthusiasts like myself really wanted them, but as it stands, I often feel like I'm in the minority. Most of my readers would bleed for a foiled hardcover that needs to be displayed in a glass case, but would turn their noses up at a fully illustrated $6 mass market. Times have changed. As in all things, there is always a chance that the ecosystem will change again. 
In fact, I promise you it will. Whether that means the mass market will see a new chance at life, however, I can't say. If prices continue to rise and it turns out that the manufacturing situation isn't as dire as rumored, there might very well be a chance. But only if mass markets and the authors who write them are given the attention they deserve. Mass markets should be appreciated not only for the art that they put out into the world, but because they spread a love of fiction and reading to the masses. Their existence brought countless hours of joy, exploration, and freedom to people who might never have been able to afford such a luxury. They were weird. They were oftentimes deeply offensive. Looking at you, mystery and sci-fi. But they were cheap. They were there. And they ignited a curiosity and love of reading in generations. That's one hell of a legacy, don't you think? Personally, I don't believe all endings are bad ones. I think that there is something beautiful in ephemera. I love collecting mass markets partly because many of them, particularly the cheapest, most quickly written, poorly edited, wildly illustrated ones, exist in tiny numbers. I might have the last copy of a book put out by a publisher that no longer exists in a format rapidly going extinct. It's sad, but it's also the way of the universe. Things, even things we love, die. What I worry about is not so much that the mass market's time might be coming to an end, but the implications of that end. If cheap, readily accessible books disappear, what will we do? Perhaps there's hope in the ecosystem analogy. When an animal who has once filled a critical ecological niche disappears, it is an evolutionary inevitability that another will adapt to take its place. My hope is that something new, perhaps a new breed of mass market, will join the ecosystem. Fingers crossed that it puts the power back into the hands of readers and authors too. Thank you for listening to this audio essay. You can find all of my sources in the show notes. If you have comments or would like to share your love of mass markets with me, I'd love to hear from you. I'd especially love it if you could take a photo of your favorites and tag me on Instagram or Blue Sky, where I'm Works by Abigail. If you'd like to check out my books, you can find them and everything else I do using the Abigail Stuff link in the notes. See you around. Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.